Well, all year, uh, we're working through the gospel according to John in a series called Finding Life in Jesus' Name. And today, we'll be working in John chapter 14. So if you'd like to start heading there with your Bible or your Bible app, that's totally great. And today, we're considering the exclusivity of the Christian faith. In, his, in, in the sixth of seven I am statements of Jesus in John's gospel, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But how can this be? And, and does this still work? Like today in 2024, to claim that there is only one way to God. Because we live in a pluralistic society with many different people claiming many different ways to be the right way. Now, I know a number of people who would look at this exclusive claim of Jesus as being something narrow-minded, maybe at best, and hateful at worst. There's, there's a modern phrase that, that captures this desire to be fully inclusive, which is, you do you. Well, this phrase means, I think, that any way that you want to follow is good if it's good for you, as defined by you. Now, on the surface level, this sounds like wisdom, right? Just do whatever you think is good. But does it work? Well, it doesn't seem to work at all. In so many ways, we are more liberated from traditional norms and values and rules today than ever before. And this has led to many good things, but do we now have peace, individually or as a society? Not at all. We seem to live in a world with only ever-increasing anxiety, division, and conflict. And this is so discouraging and depressing. There have been months, if not years of my life, where I just had to stop watching the news because it was heartbreaking. The so-called progress of our progressive culture seems to be doing more harm than good. Well, I'm not saying that we need to bring back all the traditional norms, values, and rules. That's not my sermon today. But there must be a better way. Well, according to the Bible, there is a way that God has made that is openly offered to all people, regardless of your background, regardless of your personal goodness, your morality, regardless of your ethnicity or class. Young and old, rich and poor, male and female, all are invited. Now, if you do have a Bible or a Bible app, I'd encourage you to take it and open to John chapter 14, starting with verse 1, and we'll put it up on the screens for you too. But we're going to read through this text and we're going to unpack it as we go and see. See what you think. Is this exclusive claim of Jesus plausible? John 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. 
My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Okay, let's pause here briefly. So if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you'll know that this teaching of Jesus is happening on the night before the cross of Christ. This is the Last Supper, which began with Jesus washing his disciples' feet to demonstrate the humble service that he's looking for out of his disciples. But then Judas left to betray Jesus, and as he leaves, Jesus gives his disciples a new command to love one another just as he had loved them. But at the end of chapter 13, Jesus starts talking about his departure, saying, where I am going, you cannot follow, but you will follow later. And this bothered the disciples because they didn't understand yet that Jesus had to die and rise again from the dead. So our text for today starts with Jesus comforting his disciples in their confusion. Now, even though the weight of the world was on Jesus' heart and mind, think about it. This is the night before the cross. And even though Jesus would utterly change the course of all of history, in the next three days, he's still not thinking only about himself and what he was going to accomplish and what he would endure. Jesus loved his disciples. He deeply cared for them. And so here, he's focusing on them. He's comforting them. When they all realistically should be comforting him. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do you know what it said earlier, what John said earlier in chapter 13? He said that Jesus' heart was troubled. But he's focusing on them. Don't worry, he's saying. It'll all work out in the end. But you have to trust me. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. Now in the Bible, the word believe can be translated interchangeably with faith and trust. To have faith means you believe and you trust. Put your faith and trust in me, Jesus is saying, and you'll see what I'll do. Now Jesus goes on to talk about where he's going and that he will return and bring them to a place that he will prepare for them. This passage is often read during funerals. But he talks about this as his father's house. An older translation said, in my father's house are many mansions. And that sounds cool, right? <laughs> Why did the NIV, do we, get, we downgraded to rooms? <laughs> well, it's not that times are hard in heaven and <laughs> property values of, okay, I'll stop. Um, the reason that the NIV translates it this way is because the context is in a house. He doesn't say in my father's city then it would make more sense to translate that as a house or even a mansion. But the word underlying this is a word that simply means dwelling place. 
So within the picture of the Father's house, there are many rooms. Okay, so there are other places in the Bible, I think of the book of Revelation, where this image of the heavenly city is used to describe the same place, this dwelling place. There it is referred to as the New Jerusalem. But here, Jesus is using the language of the Father's house not to emphasize anything about the size of the rooms or the quality of the furniture, but he uses this language, as we'll see throughout this whole passage, to emphasize our relationship to the Father through the preparing work of the true Son of God. So let's think about it. Who lives in a family home? Well, generally, only the members of the family. Other people might visit, but who lives there? Well, it's usually only the members of the family. So Jesus is saying that here, he, the true son, the one and only son, as he's repeatedly emphasized in John's gospel, is going to prepare a place in his father's house for us. And that it is through faith in him that we then can become what? Children of God. Adopted sons and daughters. Welcomed now into our family home. We have a rightful place because of Jesus in the Father's house. Now this is far better than some heavenly mansion. Because it means that as children of the Father... We get a relationship with, we get personal access to the only source of life and light and love in all of the universe forever. We get a new inheritance as a child in the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom where Jesus is king. And every single disciple of Jesus, okay, no matter how great or small you were or are in this world, is welcome and has a place prepared for you. Amen. But Thomas speaks up and reveals that the disciples still aren't sure what Jesus is talking about. This is a repeated theme in John's Gospel. Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? But look at how Jesus responds with, starting in verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So let's pause one more time. This is huge. In the mountain range of scripture, this is a peak. It's a 14er. Okay? Thomas said he, he needed to know the destination so he could figure out how to get there. But Jesus said that's not how this works. All you need, Thomas, is to trust me. All you need is me. You don't need to figure out the way because I am the way. Now, this is such a big claim. If you've ever studied world religions before, you'll know every other prophet 
Every other religion claims to reveal the way, the way to God or the way to avoid punishment for evil or the way to transcend suffering. There are a number of different ways envisioned by the various world religions. But only Jesus claims to be the way. And this is also the sixth, as I said, of the seven I am statements of Jesus in John's gospel. And we've said that this is so significant. We've, we've already seen Jesus say, I am the bread of life. We've heard him say, I am the light of the world, and on and on. All of these statements point to two different things. One, the divinity of Jesus. I am was, the, was where the divine name came from all the way back in the time of Moses and the Exodus. So these I am statements are Jesus claiming to be God, but then they also reveal something unique about his character. So we get his identity and his character. We get who he is and what he is like or what he does in the world. Now what, what this I am statement means is something like this. Do you want to know the true answers to all of the biggest existential questions? Why are we here? Where did everything come from? Why is the world the way that it is and what can be done about it? And where is all this going in the future? Well, if you want to know answers to these questions, then look to Jesus. Listen to Jesus because he is the truth. It's not just that he reveals the truth or he illuminates what is true. Any good teacher would do the same. It's that he is the very word of God made flesh. He is a living embodiment of the truth. In fact, Jesus says, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And we'll come back to this point of the relationship between the father and son. But the point is that Jesus reveals the truth primarily of who God is. And if he's the creator of all things, then we creatures of his creation can better know who we are, why we are, and where all this is headed. But also, Jesus doesn't just say, I am the truth. He says, I am the life. So do you want to know how to find the life that every single one of us longs for? Do you want to know how we ought to live? What our way of life ought to be? Do you want to know what can be done about the evil and injustice out there in the world or even within our own lives? Do you want to know how to find the life that lasts beyond even death? Then look to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Because he is the truth, but he is also the life. He doesn't simply heal and restore. Any good doctor, nurse, healthcare worker would try to do the same. And he doesn't only model a better way to live as our example alone, because any good leader would do the same. It's that Jesus has the life of God in him because he is God. And he will share his life with you. 
Even in the face of death, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Who else could offer life beyond the grave? But if Jesus is the truth and he is the life, and not just one truth or one life among many options, then it only makes sense that he would be the only way. Now Thomas asked about where they were going, but Jesus said this was actually the wrong question. Now it's important to notice this. Sometimes when we come to God, we bring all the wrong questions. He says, and it's not a bad question, but Jesus says the right question is not where we are going, but to whom are we going? And Jesus is the only way, he says, to the Father in heaven. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one can have a place in my Father's house. No one can become a child of God unless they follow the way that is found by faith in Jesus. But if you do not come to the Father, if you are not accepted into the Father's house, then you remain condemned already. You are choosing to stay separated or alienated from, again, the only true source of light and life and love in all of creation. That, in the Bible, is what hell is. It's described as darkness or as fire or as bitter cold. But it's to remain a cosmic orphan when there's a seat at the Father's table and a place in his family for you. What a terrible condition. But the way to the Father is open to all. The gospel is good news for everybody. The Apostle Paul writes that God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Or the Apostle Peter, he writes that the Lord is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So will the disciples understand? Will the disciples see that it's all about a relationship with a, a God who has a place for them? Well, to be fair, it would have been so hard for them before the resurrection, before the ascension of Jesus back into heaven, before the gift of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost, it would be so hard before all of those triumphant things to fully understand what Jesus is talking about here. Because nothing like this had ever happened before or ever since. But as we'll see from this last section, partially this is because there is no one like Jesus. Look at verse 8. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, after, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I have, that I, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. 
Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. This is God's word. Well, from the prologue of John's Gospel, chapter 1, all the way through, the relationship between the Father and the Son has been one of the major themes, if not the main theme of John's Gospel. And certainly, it has been the most contentious claim of Jesus. Over and over, the Son talks about who his Father is and about the unity they've enjoyed from before the creation of the world. As Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. Jesus, the one and only Son, says that no one has ever seen the Father except for him. Therefore, no one can reveal the Father to the world as he can. But they are so united that if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. When the Son works, whether in creation or salvation or judging or healing or leading or feeding, the Son does the works of the Father. When the Son speaks, He speaks the words of the Father. When the Son saves, He saves the ones that His Father has given Him, but also the ones that He has chosen. When the Son comes into the world, it's because he was sent from the Father. And those who receive the Son receive the Father. When the Son is glorified, the Father is glorified. But the Father also glorifies the Son. Now, in the coming few weeks, and especially in chapter 17 and the high priestly prayer of Jesus, we'll, we'll continue to see this theme of the relationship between the Father and the Son unfolding. And of course, the rest of the New Testament in the Bible is shaped by this doctrine as well. Colossians 1 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter 1 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. The stunning conclusion to all of this is that there has never been anyone like Jesus. There is no one like Jesus. Jesus. There's no one who knows God the Father and makes him known like the Son. So it's only natural that in the wisdom of God, the only way to come to the Father, to be included in the Father's house, would be through the person and the work of who? The Son. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, how could it be any other way? You believe in God, believe also in me, says Jesus. Now, as we'll see next week, God is not only a unity between the Father and Son. God is a tri-unity or a trinity of three equally divine persons. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that, but Jesus says that his departure will usher in these final days of our current age and the gift of the person of the Holy Spirit. And there is so much more to say about him. Jesus is far from done teaching at the Last Supper, okay? Long sermon that night. Well, for now, Jesus is emphasizing his relationship not with the Spirit, but with the Father. 
And all this comes from Philip's request for Jesus to show them the Father. And again, it's not a bad ask. It's not a bad request. He wants to know God. He wants to see him in his glory if possible. That's a good desire. It reminds us of Moses' request to see the fullness of God's glory at Mount Sinai. Philip wants to know God and see him, but you can almost hear the hurt in Jesus' response. Philip, don't you know me? Even after all this time that I've spent with you, how can you say, show us the Father? Jesus says, in effect, if you don't believe in me, well, at least believe on the basis of all the stuff I've been doing. What are all these miraculous signs pointing to? Where do you think all this teaching comes from? Do these things that I have been saying and doing, do these works and words seem like the works and the words of God to you or not? But if you do, if you do believe, it'll change everything. It'll change your works. It'll change your words. It'll change your perspective, your identity, your prayers, your life. And the Father will be glorified in the greater works and in the faith-filled prayers, the in-Jesus-name prayers that are accomplished by his children in the power of the name of the resurrected and the exalted Son. What does this mean for us today? I have to say, what doesn't this mean for us today? But an easy application, I think, from this passage would be simply an invitation to believe in Jesus, to receive him, to trust in him, to learn to follow his way, even if you can't quite see where you're going. It's a way of truth. It's a way that leads to real life, to eternal life. But if it's true, everybody's got to hear about this. Everyone needs to receive this invitation because the invitation isn't exclusive. The invitation is open to all. But secondly, how might we think about the exclusivity of Christianity? Well, at the end of the day, again, if this is true, then there is only one way. Now, over the years, for myself, it's been helpful for me to remember that this is a function of the relational aspect of the Christian faith. Sure, the gospel provides a way to be forgiven and freed from the power of sin. But have you ever thought, like, what's the big deal about sin? Why is that such a problem for the world? Well, sin is only a problem because sin separates Sin separates us from having a relationship with God. Frankly, sin separates us from having relationships with people around us, too. It's a wedge that drives relationships apart. And so, if Christian salvation 
was based on your moral performance or even your religious devotion, then the way could be a law. Do this, don't do that. You'll be fine. Or if Christian salvation was based on adopting a new perspective, a new mindset, then the way could be a new philosophy, a new framework of seeing the world or yourself. But Christian salvation is based on a real relationship with a real person. And our relationship with this person does, in fact, affect how we think and act, but it is first a relationship. And the only way to have a real relationship with a real person is by dealing directly and only with that person. Now, I can't, thinking about my relationship with my wife, Holly, I can't have a relationship with her merely by talking about her. Right? That would be strange. <laughs> that would be very unnatural. And I can't have a relationship with her uh, because I just think about her all the time. Right? And I can't have a relationship with her if I talk about her to other people all the time. I have to have a relationship. The only way I can have a relationship with her is by dealing with her directly, spending time with her, talking with her, letting her change me, and vice versa. But as wonderful as a relationship can be in this age, with a friend or with a spouse, how much greater is the idea that our Creator, our Father in Heaven, wants a relationship with us. That's wild. And if we want to receive that precious gift, that life-giving gift, according to Him, there's only one way to do it. And His name is Jesus. No one is like Him. His way is a better way. And if we as a church truly believed this, it would utterly transform our works, our words, our perspectives, our identities, our prayers, our relationships, our lives. All are welcome. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. Your patience with us is just limitless. <laughs> Your grace to us is, is boundless. Your love for us is just, I can't really figure it out. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, honestly, Lord, but the consistent message from day one all the way through the whole, all the generations of the Bible, we see that it's just unstoppable. And nowhere do we see it reflected more clearly than in the sending of your beloved Son so that he might sacrifice his life so that we might be welcomed into your family. I pray, Father, that we would see the access that we have been given through Jesus, that you have become our Father, and that you have a place, a dwelling place for us in your house. There's a seat for us at your table.
There's an inheritance for us in your kingdom. So, Father, we give you all the honor and the praise. We give you all the thanks from the bottom of our hearts and through the course of our lives because, Father, we could never repay you for this. Help us to enjoy this gift and trust in Jesus no matter what. We pray in his name. Amen.